Bob's away um, doing a marriage ceremony this weekend, uh, so I am filling in for him. He actually, the, the passage that we're going to go over, uh, he actually put up as his last slide uh, last Sunday, which I told him after the service. I said, hey, you did that just for me. You set that up for, for next week. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So let me pray, and we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, the time we have just to sit and worship you, Lord, to acknowledge that you are Almighty God. Lord, and to be still in that. And Lord, thank you for the gift of your word, the inerrant, infallible word of God. Lord, and as we look at it today, um, I pray that uh, for each of us in here that you would speak to us the way that you want, that we would understand and hear from you, your Holy Spirit, whatever you would have for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, if I had to title uh, this morning's sermon, um, I wrote at the top of my notes that our lives are not about us anymore, and that is a good thing. Uh, the passage that we're going to look at uh, is from Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 21 this is my first time that I've actually, they've let me use the iPad, so I'm very excited. I put it up there, proud of myself. Um, uh, and here it is. This is, uh, this is, the second half of this is what Bob left up there last week. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Essentially what's happening here is Peter is misunderstanding in a, in a pretty dramatic way the, the basic concepts of the kingdom of God. Jesus has started to tell them, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'll be raised again. But it just didn't land. And so Peter doesn't, Peter's missing this, and, and Jesus corrects him. Like a lot of uh, really great narratives, it starts with a stunning rebuke. Um, I can't imagine what it was like to hear that. And it reminded me, one of my favorite films from when I was a kid, which is famous right now, there's Goose and Maverick in the original Top Gun. Everybody my age knows who I'm talking about. If you don't know who they are, you should go see the new one. It is good. And they're standing there, and they are getting chewed out. This is a still photo, and I know that feeling. They've got kind of the lump in the throat. The, the eyes are big. Uh, and their commander is letting them know, uh, whichever one, I don't know, but that they did something wrong, and they're just standing there and taking it. And so 
This is one of the things that I think appeals to us about characters like Maverick and Top Gun is that he, he does something terribly wrong. And then by the end of the film, he's kind of, you know, redeemed himself, which we don't do. But he's kind of, you know, kind of gotten over it and moved on. And Peter is like that. Peter, is, Peter steps into this situation and, and could not be more wrong. And here's one of the worst rebukes, if not the worst one I ever had. I don't know if you know this, if you're um, kind of drive, if you drive past a local high school, football practice has started. Started probably Monday. They're doing what I, we used to do two a days. They don't even do it that way anymore. Uh, but when I was in two days in high school, I heard a few insults from my coaches. I got a few, a few stern rebukes. I actually wrote down a couple because I, I couldn't remember them all. Uh, here's one. I, I, I heard this a lot. I ran like a grandma. They're like, hey, are you, what's wrong with you? You're running like your grandmother. And I, I remember, I was like, how do you know how my grandma runs? That doesn't make sense. Uh, which I, you know. The other one, this is one of my favorites. I don't really know, like, what it means. Uh, I was dumber than a bag of hammers. I don't know. I, I, part of me was like, coach, I don't have any frame of reference for that. But these are the kinds of things coaches would say. There's a lot of other ones I heard that, we, you know, wouldn't be appropriate to re re uh, repeat here. Um, but we would go and, like, laugh about these things, like, at the end of practice, you know, and, you know, uh, we would laugh about what the coaches would say. It was never a big deal. I do remember the, the man who mentored and discipled me when I was growing up bringing me into his office and, and really setting me straight on a couple things. And it was really important for me uh, but, but at no point did he say, get behind me, Satan. Like it, didn't, it didn't elevate to that point. He was, he, I had it coming, and he was right, but it wasn't that serious. So I think it's important we understand what, what, is, what is Peter got so wrong? So, like, again, one of the things we love about Peter, Peter takes huge swings. You know, Peter walked on water for a minute. Like, I don't know how many steps, a handful. Like, he takes big, he, he, he like goes all in, and then he fails often. And that's one of the, he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible and somebody that I can't wait to meet in heaven because I just, I just want to get to know this person. But I really, I, I respect that he, that he would jump all in, but he, he really gets this wrong. So what, what happens here, and why does Jesus respond to him the way that he did? So Jesus came down, to, came, came down from heaven to lay down his life, to suffer and die on the cross. Peter doesn't understand it, and to him it is unthinkable, Bob's talked about this a lot, that their Messiah, who they expected to come in on a, on a battle horse and lead them to victory over the Romans who occupied them, it was unthinkable to them that their Messiah would suffer and would die. Part of the thing that was attractive to the disciples about attaching themselves to Jesus as they understood he was the Messiah was that, hey, we're going to win. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be, like, Jesus is going to take over. It's going to be his kingdom, and hey, we're going to be with him. That's why they asked to be seated at his right and his left. It's the place of honor for the king. You know, they, they, they're there, and, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You know, you don't know what you're actually going to enter into because he, he doesn't get it. So it's unthinkable. Now, when we understand the kind of God that we have, 
one that, that, is, that is willing to suffer and die for our sin. Like it gives us great insight into his character, especially as we go through things in life where things don't go the way we want them to go. We know that he's trustworthy, reliable. So the first problem that Jesus has with what Peter says, and Peter, uh, Jesus says it, Peter is obstructing. He's standing in the way of the work of God. This is the first reason that this rebuke is so direct. He's literally standing in the way of the work of God. Um, now, he, what he's saying to Jesus is, oh, no, 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 not the cross. You, that's, that's not going to happen to you. You know, it's not going to go down that way. Now, Jesus had heard this kind of temptation before. Let's look at the next, next passage here. This is from Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what Satan is saying to Jesus in this passage in Luke chapter 4, which is where he's taking him out in the desert and tempting him, is, hey, Jesus, listen, why don't we skip this whole cross thing? Like, what we can do is, is I'll put, like, if you worship me, I'll let you have authority over all these things. Which, by the way, Jesus is going to have authority over all these things later. Okay? And then he says, oh, and by the way, if you, if you go down from the highest point of the temple and you get rescued, everyone's going to know who you are. So we don't need to go down this pathway of the cross. We can skip that. And you can skip the suffering and the pain and the anguish and the humiliation of that. That's the temptation Satan is offering to him. Peter does exactly the same thing. Oh no, Jesus, it will never be this way with you. And so he's literally, God's work is moving this direction and Peter stands in front of it and stops and says, uh-uh, no, this is not gonna happen. That's the first reason why this rebuke is so strong. That's the first reason. The second one is this. And this is where, I think when we look at a person like Peter and we look at passage of the scripture, one of the things that we should do is always ask, how do I relate to this person? Like, how do I do the things that they're doing now? For good or for worse? You know, I mean, it, you know. Um, but here's what Peter does. Peter prescribes what Jesus is gonna do. He doesn't say, he says, this shall never happen to you. He doesn't say, 
if possible, this shall never happen to you. He doesn't say, I'll go back to the, he doesn't say to him, I don't know if I, yeah, he doesn't say to him, this shall, this, if, if possible, this won't happen. He says, no way, this, this will not happen. He prescribes to Jesus the way things are going to go down. Now, if we're honest, you and I do the same thing. God, this is, this is how I want things to be. And there might be certain things in our life that there's areas where we're okay with God working and moving and changing some things, but there might be some areas in our life we're saying, God, as long as I get this, or as long as this thing works this way for me, then you can kind of do what you want on the fringes. Peter prescribes to Jesus, this is how it was, is going to be. That's the second reason why this rebuke is so strong. Here is something that's really important to note in this. What's Peter's role in Jesus' life? Peter is one of Jesus' best friends. One of his best friends. Peter, James, and John were his three best. Probably his mother knew him better than anybody by a significant margin. And it's his best friend who comes and, and, and tries to get him to stop the work that God is having him do. And so I think when you think about that, like, like as a friend, how are you influencing your brothers and sisters in Christ? As a spouse, as a sibling, as a friend, as a, as a coworker, whatever, as a, as a small group member, how are you influencing your brothers and sisters in Christ? I also think it's important for us to realize that when we get counsel from other people, it is not their relationship to us that matters the most. Their relationship to us may win the right to share what they want to share, but what matters the most is, is the counsel they're giving you biblical or not? It isn't just that you're close, you have a long history. Is, is what they're saying to you, the advice they're giving in line with Scripture. So the two reasons this rebuke is so stern, back to these guys, the two reasons are number one, because Peter is literally standing in the way of the work of God. And the second reason is because he is prescribing to God, to Jesus, telling him what to do. Again, this is where you and I need to be very aware of what we do and how we think uh, in our relationship with God. Um, God does not need our help. Romans 11.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's not us. <laughs> For you and I, there's a great lesson in that. I had a, a pastor, actually the pastor that, uh, that led Bob Mosley to the Lord a long time ago in Arlington, Virginia. I think I've told you before that Bob and I are from the same hometown. And he would always say this. He would say, Joe, yes, there is a God and it's not you. And for us, we got to know that. Is there a God? Absolutely. And it's not you. We don't get to make the decisions. We are not in charge. 
Now, I understand part of what Peter's dealing with here. Uh, most of us think that when we follow Jesus, everything is going to be great. It is true in the long run. Uh, think heaven. Bob has used this analogy many times that if you have a mundane job where the, the, your supervisor yells at you every day and you're getting $15 million at the end of your 20 years, you're fine with it. You'll take whatever. So will things work out for us in the long run? Absolutely. Better than we could have hoped for. And God will even take hard things that have happened and somehow redeem them and use them for good in ways that we don't even understand and, and can't grasp right now. But in the here and now, uh, it's not necessarily going to go great for us. I mean, it is a promise that we're going to suffer. We'll talk more about that in a second. All of us in this room know um, the disappointment of unmet expectations. Everybody here knows, man, I really wanted things to be this way, and, the, and they, they aren't. And, and again, it could be a good, a, a, a good desire. It doesn't need to be an evil one. But we expect things to be a certain way or we wish things were a certain way. Might be with work, might be in your personal life, might be with one of your kids. So all of us know, and we deal with this problem of unmet expectations, this disappointment. Some of you are going through right now, kind of quietly, uh, without everybody knowing, unspeakable loss and intense grief. That's a reality of our world. Now, this can lead us down the path, again, of thinking that God does not have our best interests at heart. And I think sometimes when we get to that point, we think, ah, maybe, maybe we know better. And Jesus tells us here it's not true. You know, we want to prescribe to God, here's how things are supposed to be. Now, let's move on to verses 24 and 25. Let's go back up here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, when we hear the phrase deny ourselves, usually we think of it this way. We think of it like, oh, like, like we're trying to deny yourself sweets or trying to deny yourself red meat. Jesus means we should set aside our very will, our very self, okay? It's not just, oh, don't, you know, you know try to trim the waistline a little bit spiritually. It's like, no, no, like it's, it's you deny yourself. Now, it is in a great and hopefully freeing sense our lives don't belong to us anymore. That's what, that's the gift of this passage, and we'll get to more of the fun part about that in a second. But we have to talk about um, what it means to take up our cross. Um, but, but one verse, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 15. I'm not going to flip to it. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and then, was, and then was raised again. Let me read it again. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, 
Think about our culture and our world. We are not supposed to live for ourselves. Our culture says you, yourself, is all that matters. And everything runs through that. That's not what, that's not what it says. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So our lives don't belong to us, and that is a good thing. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, there's two parts to this. The first part is Jesus is saying that it may cost you your literal life. It may cost you your literal life. When he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, think about it, he's talking to his disciples, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He's saying to them, hey, you might be executed if you follow me. And actually, out of the 12 disciples, 10 were executed. Judas took his own life and John was exiled to Patmos. So part of it is Jesus is saying, hey, this might cost you your life. The second thing, which is something that we relate to more, we don't live under the threat of being murdered here in the United States. It also means that each of us has a cross to take up, a burden or a type of suffering, something that will come at great cost to you. So if I were to ask you this morning, what cross are you bearing? Many of us know the answer right away. What cross are you bearing? Jesus tells us to take up that cross, not try to refuse that cross or run from that cross. He says, take up your cross. It's not a literal thing that we're carrying around, but each of us has some sort of cross, some thing that we're going to go through that we're going to deal with. And Jesus says, take it up. Don't run from it. Don't try to refuse it. Now, that's tough, because that doesn't sound like much fun. But verse 25, this is the part that I love. We've, I've talked about this um, with a lot of our Young Life volunteers and staff a ton. What does verse 25 mean? He who seeks to... For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. First, this speaks generally, big picture, salvation. If you're trying to cling for your, to yourself, do things your own way on your own strength and merit, you will not have a relationship with Christ. But if you're willing to surrender yourself to him, you will have a relationship with Christ. So first it talks big picture, salvation. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The second part is we get to die to ourselves and, and give ourselves away in a way that actually brings us life. Our problem is we love our wealth, we love our pleasure, and we love our reputation. So we get trapped in our self-interest, our self-reliance, self-indulgence, and self-promotion. This, by the way, when Jesus says, 
we're going to lose our lives. This is completely against our culture. Our culture tells us what we want is the most important, and, and even that we can decide what's true. You know, it used to be God would decide what's true, and now culturally, you decide what's true. You get, to, you get to make your own choice there. So what does it look like to lose your life? I, I struggled with coming up with some practical things. I came, up with, I came up with three or four. If we're gonna lose our life to find it, what does that look like? The first example I came up with is, think about your individual time with the Lord. You're gonna sit down, you're gonna read your Bible. For me, I get a cup of coffee, Bible, a little something to write with. If I don't have a pen, like for me, the pen unlocks my brain. I can daydream about anything at any time. If I'm writing, that keeps me on task. So an example would be getting up half an hour early each day to spend time with God. You're going to lose your life. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, you're going to find it. So how does that work? Well, you get up early, you give up your extra half hour of sleep. Today's culture says, and I know this, the number one descriptive word anybody uses about themselves is busy. I'm busy. Everybody has stuff to do and places to go. A lot of people here are really tired. A lot of you have newborn babies. That's like the, you know, the PhD of being tired. So you're tired. But when you get up and spend time with the Lord, you give yourself, give up your desire and what you want, that 30 minutes of sleep that sounds so delicious especially to a new parent. And then you spend time with God. And God interacts with you and changes who you are. I would challenge everybody in this room and online, for 30 days in a row, get up and spend time with the Lord. It will change you from the inside out. When I do that, it changes everything about my day. I love people more I'm a better listener. I think about what God is doing or not doing, and I'm like just more aware of the Holy Spirit in general. Have I ever gotten up early to spend time with the Lord and regretted it? That's an easy no. And I would challenge everyone for 30 days in a row. I would be fascinated to see what would happen with First Church if we did that for 30 days. And I know a lot of people are doing it now, and that's great. Every day, get up a little bit earlier. God, God wants to work in us and wants to bring genuine transformation. But it requires sometimes us giving up what we think we need and really want with that 30 minutes of sleep. That's one example. Another example I thought about, um, in my work with kids with Young Life, uh, there is one, one kind of area of regret that kids will voice to me. This, is, this has been true since I started doing this a long time ago, and it's still true today. And that is some sexual behavior, some uh, sexual relationship that a kid had. And so when we talk about losing our life and then finding it, like what that means in that context is you're in a situation your, your body is telling you, I, I, this is what I want. And you set that aside and say, no, I'm, I, I I, I'm going to set aside what I want, and I'm going to go in a different direction. I, I, have never, I have never met a kid that 
regretted staying away from sexual relationships when they're younger for a variety of reasons. So that's another example. Third example, this is a little bit lighter. You talk about something like that, the whole room, the air kind of comes out. It does, it's okay. But it's, we have to talk about stuff like that. Like if we can't talk about it here, where are we gonna talk about it? Here's another example, a little lighter, but I think it's very true. Um, for the first 10 years or so of my marriage to Virginia, <laughs> I can talk about this because she's out of town this weekend. Uh, this is the Bob Claus. He's like, if Beverly's not here, he says some stuff. I'm like, okay, good thing to learn from. So she would get, I could tell she was sort of mad at me and I didn't know why. And I would say, hey, you know, I might be dumber than a bag of hammers, but even I can read this, you know. And, uh, and she's like, well, you know, you didn't do the dishes like four days in a row or whatever. Maybe it was 40, I don't remember. That's not the point. <laughs> And I said, oh, I, I didn't know you, like, I didn't know that was, you wanted me to do that. And she's like, well, I don't want to have to tell you, like, I want you to want to do the dishes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, listen, you know, if you don't tell me, be prepared for crushing disappointment for the rest of our marriage. Because I'm not going to wake up and be like, oh, yeah, you know what I really want to do today, you know? This is what I thought about, you know, set aside golf or, you know, watching sports or what are going to the movies. I really want to do dishes. That, that would never happen. And so then I said, listen, here's what I need you to do. I said, if you would just help me to remember, I'm happy to do it to serve you. But if you would just, you know, remind me. And here's what I learned. She would say, hey, Joe, uh, you want to you wanna do the dishes? Guess what my instinct was every time? No. And then I was like, is this optional? Because if it's optional, you know, I, I don't, you know. But she would say, do you want to do the dishes? And I would, and my first instinct would be like, no, I don't want to do the dishes. I learned, slow learner, but I did learn that, that, that I should do that. Now, again, this is a, this is a little bit of a silly example, but it's, it's going against my instinct and my desire Okay, now this is what's funny. If I do the dishes, is my marriage better, more fulfilling? Do my wife and I get along better? 100%. So like, it's like, yeah, I'm laying down my life. I'm doing something I don't want to do. And again, that's a small, little bit silly example. But, but what you benefit, you benefit from it. Uh, and it just makes the, the other aspects of your marriage so much better. Now, I wrote some notes here at the last minute with a pen that is hardly legible, but I wanted to make sure I included this. When we are secure in Jesus' love for us, we do not need external validation in the same way. We don't need it from our spouse, from our kids, good luck with that, uh, from our job, when we are secure in being loved by Jesus Christ, we don't need external validation and we are free to love others and operate in a way that's not about us. And that is when Jesus talks about, like, like Jesus promised abundant life and Bob always talks about bios and zoe. He says zoe. I promise you abundant zoe. That's what he's talking about. It's that you are free to, to live in a way that goes against the culture and you are free to live in a way 
that you don't need to worry about what you're doing in the culture meeting your needs. And it's, it's freeing. It's fantastic. Uh, one good question to, to ask is, um, when I'm thinking about doing something, will this glorify me or will this glorify Christ? Sometimes it's both in a, in a, you know, in a good way, but often we're just talking about glorifying ourselves. Now, here's one example from the Scriptures uh, that I think gives this some, uh, a real practical thing, and I'll explain it, and then we'll wrap up with this. This is from Matthew 5, 41. This is a great verse. I, I learned about this from the man who mentored me a long time ago, and it's, it's become a top five for me, and I like it because it's short. It's easy to memorize. If anyone forces you to go one mile, I think it's on here, Go with them two miles. Well, that sounds doable. I mean, like that's, again, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Here's what this means. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people there. They were occupied by the Romans, okay? So there are Roman soldiers walking around all the time. And the law was a Roman could go to a Jew at any time and make them carry their stuff for a mile. They didn't have like a, you know, a GPS. They probably had a number of steps you would take. Um, I don't know what the number was, but they had a number of steps you would take. Uh, and then you, you didn't have to carry the soldier's equipment anymore. And if you've seen some of the you know, movies, some of that stuff's heavy. Shields, big swords, stuff like that. But it was, you had to do it. And it was, in most cases, people you hated at worst or didn't like. The Romans were brutal. Crucifixion was, uh, Bob's mentioned this from here, was invented to, as a torture device. Um, they had slaughtered Jews, uh, and they, they were oppressing them. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, two people that are a little bit different walking down the road. This is the dominating army and the oppressed person. And Jesus says, don't go with them one mile, go with them two miles. So imagine the Roman soldier walking along, and knowing the number of steps it was, and at the prescribed point, the soldier stops and goes to take his equipment back. Jesus is saying to this person, this, this Jew saying, no, no, tell the guy, hey, you know what? No, that's good. I'll, I'll go another mile with you. I'll carry your stuff another mile. Two questions my mentor would ask me. Number one, what do you think they talked about on the second mile? Had to be, why? Why are you carrying my stuff? And the second question, which mile was more fun for the guy that had to carry it? Everybody goes the first mile. This is an example, biblically, of laying down your life to find it. The second mile. Now, that person, the, the people he's talking to, in our culture, every right to say, oh man, you're oppressing me. I'm not going to be kind to you. I'm going to, I'm going to protest you. I'm, I'm going to fight against this 100%. I don't want to do it. Jesus says, no, no, no. Go, go the second mile. And again, what do you think they talked about on the second mile? Probably why you're carrying my stuff. And the second thing is, which mile was more fun? Our lives don't belong to us anymore, and that is a good thing. I'm going to pray. We'll be done. Uh, we are going to uh, stack the chairs nine high. Got it. Thanks, Jose. Let me pray.
Father, thank you for this morning, the chance to spend some time in your word. God, I pray um, for each of us individually and our time with you and as a church. God, we pray that uh, for you to continue to work. Thank you for the gift of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.